We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode number 346 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 15, Traverse 2. This is a CBS News special report. A ride on the moon. The flight of Apollo 15. This morning, astronauts Scott and Irwin take their second lunar drive. Reporting from the CBS News Space Headquarters in New York, correspondent David Shoemacher. Good morning. Uh, We've accomplished what the astronauts cannot, and that is change crews in mid-mission. Walter Cronkite and Wally Schirra will be at this position in about an hour and a half. Apollo 15 astronauts David Scott and James Irwin, meanwhile, are finishing preparations for their second walk and ride on the moon. They're expected to start climbing down from their Falcon lunar lander in less than 15 minutes. A couple of problems had to be cleared up before the start of today's expedition. A leak developed while they were outside yesterday in connection with the Falcon's drinking water system. About 24 pounds of water was lost before the flow was stopped and a puddle cleaned up. But space officials say that still leaves enough water to complete the mission. And all those activities yesterday on the lunar rover caused the astronauts to use more oxygen than they expected. So today's moonwalk has been cut back an hour and about a half an hour. That means it should last about six and a half hours. Actually, that's almost exactly the same length as yesterday's trip, which was rated a smashing success by the critics of mission control and the television critics as well. Today's ride on the rover will take Scott and Irwin even farther than they went yesterday, which was about five to six miles. Today they should cover as much as ten miles, be almost five miles away from the lunar rover, the lunar lander, that is, at its uh, most distant point. Principally, they'll be ranging along the uh, foothills of the Apennine mountain range, and we'll talk about that in a minute. The uh, crew reported that they slept fine. That was some concern. Uh, You may recall that Before uh, this mission, uh, they were worried that they wouldn't get enough sleep on the moon, and with all this uh, work to do, it was important. It was so important that the astronauts even simulated sleep uh, overnight uh, more than once in their uh, simulators with uh, tape recorders and uh, other effects to make them think they were actually on the moon. David Scott had no trouble sleeping. Jim Irwin said that uh, his air mattress, uh, which he had in a simulator that he wouldn't have up on the moon, uh, kept deflating uh, that plus... uh, Dave Scott's snores kept him awake. Last night, they were so exhausted that within 30 minutes after mission control had given them a good night, uh, telemetry indicated that the astronauts were sound asleep. They woke up about three hours ago, have been going through their preparations ever since. Uh, Once again, a small problem developed on the moon, and that was the Uh, an air bubble in the water that's used inside the astronaut's backpack for cooling. And so the uh, puss, the uh, backpack, had to be drained and refilled. 
That delayed them no more than a few moments. Uh, we think they're probably right about on their timeline and due to uh, leave the spacecraft within 10 minutes or so. The first day's exploration had taken a toll on Jim Irwin. Not until he and Scott were back in the lunar module did he feel the full measure of his exhaustion. Aside from this mental fatigue brought on by hours of intense concentration and the pressure of finally doing the real thing instead of just simulating it, he was physically spent. The never-ending glare from the sun and the bright landscape had given him a fierce headache, and he was parched. The water bag in his suit had refused to work, and he had gone more than seven hours without a drink. Worst of all was the pain in his fingers. By the end of the moonwalk, they were so sore that when it came to take off his gloves, he had to ask Scott for help. When they had settled in for the evening, Irwin used a pair of scissors to trim his fingernails all the way back, which did help. He suggested Scott do the same, but Scott declined, reluctant to do anything that might compromise his dexterity. Despite what CBS was reporting, after the moonwalk, Irwin had been overtired, and he had not slept well. Nevertheless, he felt renewed as he and Scott prepared for the second traverse. Yesterday, they had been denied the chance for real prospecting up on Hadley Delta, but now they would have one more chance to find out what the mountains of the moon had to offer. At 138 hours and 4 minutes ground elapsed time, once again the astronauts received a wake-up call that was not what they expected on the morning of their second day on the moon. They were woken a little earlier than planned because it appeared that water had leaked while they were sleeping. It apparently came from a damaged filter mechanism. That's Falcon, Houston, loud clear. Uh, when you're up and ready to converse, let me know. But uh, first thing we've been concerned about, I guess we'll start off with this, is uh, according to our data, you lost uh, about 25 pounds of water during the uh, post-DBA uh, yesterday, and uh, we uh, it, it appears that it leaked out during that uh, problem you had with a broken uh, bacteria filter. What we're wondering is if you've looked around carefully in the cabin and uh, noticed any sign of that 25 pounds of water. We uh, suggest looking back uh, behind the SN engine cover because it possibly would have run back there and not have been obvious to you. Over. The slight slope in the spacecraft meant the water had collected at the rear of the cabin in what was called a little puddle. In fact, it was a great big puddle, and given the maze of electrical wiring in the vicinity, could have caused a very serious problem. Thankfully, the wiring was waterproofed. Scott was more than a little annoyed that Houston had not alerted them immediately when they became aware of the leak even though that would have meant waking them up. 
Scott believed a commander must always be informed of the condition of his ship. The previous morning, they had also been woken a little earlier than scheduled when a small oxygen leak was detected. That was fixed quickly. But here they were with a similar annoyance. If they had fallen behind schedule in sorting out the problem either day, it would have jeopardized their busy program of exploration. As it was, Houston came up with a nice solution to the little puddle. Okay, Dave, uh, our suggested uh, procedure for uh, collecting that will be to remove the netting and whatever is required to get down to it. Use uh, a used food bag as a scoop if it's a deep enough puddle to scoop it up. And uh, take uh, one of the used Lyo containers that contain the used cartridge uh, that's in the buddy's list bag now is uh, scheduled for the upcoming jettison. Take the uh, Lyo cartridge out of the container, then use the container itself to uh, hold the water as you scoop it up with the food bag. And uh, then when you get down to the point where you can no longer get any more water, use uh, utility towels to uh, mop up the rest. Over. Fortunately, this housekeeping job did not take too long, but they had another problem with Jim's backpack that had to be addressed. In total, they were now running about an hour behind schedule. Well, apparently that problem with the water coolant system on board uh, Jim Irwin's backpack it was a bit more serious than expected. At least uh, they have now set at mission control that it may be as much as an hour before this walk and ride begins. Uh, they feel that they have solved the problem with the uh, bubble in the water coolant system. Uh, they have refilled the backpack, but still that it caused them to slip enough in their flight plan that uh, they are, as we say, just about an hour behind. Once the astronauts finally exited the limb, one of the first tasks was to test the rover's front steering, and to everyone's surprise, it was suddenly working correctly. Okay, Dave, uh, once again, we want you to exercise the forward, uh, the forward steering uh, procedure here. Okay, you want to try it first, just the way it was, and uh, then we'll try the circuit breaker, right? Roger. The forward steering switch should be at bus Charlie, and uh, the forward steering circuit breaker should be finally closed and then attempt forward steering. You know what I bet you did last night, Joe? You let some of those Marshall guys come up here and fix it, didn't you? They've been working, that's for sure. It works, Dave? Yes, sir. It's working, my friend. Beautiful. A lot of smiles on that one, Dave. We might as well use it today. Well, Boeing has a secret booster somewhere to take care of their rover. Oh, that's so much better. As the crew began Traverse 2, here's what was planned for this historic day of lunar exploration. To get a better feeling for where we and they are about to go, we turn to Dr. John Salisbury who is with the Air Force's Cambridge Research Laboratory. Dr. Salisbury, what can you tell us about today's route? 
Oh, David, first, uh, perhaps we'd just go on a little tour. I uh, mentioned crater names that you might hear uh, the astronauts refer to today. Uh, they're going to start way over here on our model from the limb, go past the index crater and Salyut in between the two, then go past Earthlight crater here, then past Dune crater here, then on to the Apennine front. At the Apennine front, you'll hear probably crater names such as Spur. They work to go all the way to front crater here. They probably won't get that far. As you said, they shortened the mission because it was a very ambitious one. They'll turn around, go back along the Apennine front, and virtually retrace their steps past Dune Crater, Earthlight, Index, and back to the limb. Uh, Dr. Salisbury, uh, Mission Control a few moments ago said that uh, if they make a modification in the, uh, the plan that they think it will probably be to drop the south cluster of craters rather than front craters. So that would put us still to that farthest point. But where's the south well, cluster? <laughs> south cluster is here. Uh, they were going to go not into the whole cluster, which as you can see is rather rugged. They were going to go into Dune. Um, this, uh, they, they will be able to sample craters that we might think as a part of south cluster. There are craters here that they will pass and that they may sample. They go right back by there too, yes. don't they, on their way home? Right, they go right back by Dune. And, and, and buy it on the way out. But the Apennine front is of more interest to everyone, and the reason for this uh, is that we uh, may find a, a vast variety of rocks there of uh, quite a variety of ages. Uh, as you know, the Apennine front was, uh, is an uptilted block, part of the uptilted blocks of the Apennine mountain ranges uh, that were uptilted uh, when the giant impact produced, uh, produced the Imbrian Basin. Now, uh, these, these blocks were plastered with debris, Apennine debris thrown out of the Imbrian Basin, but they uh, were also underneath this Apennine debris. You have older debris, that uh, older debris that was thrown out of a nearby basin, the Mare Serenitatis Basin, and beneath the Serenitatis debris you have still older material, perhaps a part of the primeval lunar crust. This is what we'd like to sample. Uh, these looking back in time, as you know, by, by sampling older and older rocks to understand the early history and the origin of the moon. Any irritation Dave Scott had felt at the slow start to Traverse 2 soon evaporated once they got underway toward the lower reaches of the magnificent Apennine Mountains. As the rover did its drunken gallop across the mare, heading south, back at Mission Control in the science back room, Lee Silver listened to Scott and Irwin's progress. As usual, Scott was going full throttle, and they were making good time. They zipped past Dune Crater, a yawning block-rimmed hole in the mare that was their last landmark before Hadley Delta. Then they reported they were going up a slight incline. They were on the flank of the mountain. With Scott concentrating on his driving, Irwin was doing most of the talking, and Silver was glad for what he heard. Only a few days before launch, after the last of a regular series of evening geology briefings at the Cape, Silver had said goodbye to his students. In the parking lot of the crew quarters, he wished them well. He felt admiration for them and also concern, but they radiated confidence. Though Irwin was just as adept as Scott, Silver knew 
he usually deferred to his commander and said comparatively little. One day, late in the training, Silver took Irwin aside and told him not to just follow Dave around silently. He wanted to hear what Irwin had to say about the geology of the moon. And Jim agreed he would try. It turned out Silver did not need to worry. Irwin was full of detailed and precise descriptions as the rover bounced along. Irwin brought a patient thoroughness to the explorations that complemented Scott's drive and exuberance. He frequently directed his commander's attention to something too important to ignore, but always as a suggestion, saying, Dave, shouldn't we get that rock over there? And now, as Silver listened, Irwin made a new discovery. The side of Mount Hadley was covered with a slanting pattern of straight lines, as if a giant comb had been dragged across it. Everyone in the back room wondered excitedly whether the lines might help solve the riddle of how these mountains had formed. Perhaps Mount Hadley was a block of layered bedrock that had been raised up by the violence of the Imbrium impact. For more clues, they would have to wait for the photographs. As the rover effortlessly climbed the slope at the base of Mount Hadley Delta at an impressive speed of six miles per hour, the spectacular panorama spread before them and actually took them by surprise and wonder. At sea level on Earth, the horizon is roughly 12 miles away, but on the moon, it's only about a mile and a half away because the curvature of that smaller globe is sharper. From the crew's elevated position several hundred feet up, for the first time, they could see much further than that. In the distance was the gentle valley of Hadley Reel, snaking across the landscape, surrounded by undulating, crater-packed terrain. In the foreground and to one side, they could see their temporary home, the silvery, spider-like falcon squatting like a small insect on the vast Hadley Plain several miles away. Looming above them to the east was the majesty of the 15,000-foot Mount Hadley Delta. The smooth flanks of the high mountains had taken on a golden hue as they moved slightly later in the lunar morning. Unlike on Earth, where the cycles of freezing and thawing crack the rock and give the mountaintops a rough terrain, the top of these mountains were smooth and undulating clearly framed by the dark dome of the sky. Boy, that's a big mountain when you're down here looking up, isn't it? My, oh my. That's as big a mountain as I ever looked up. Dave, do you see spur as you look up there? The crater's in that one directly ahead. Oh, yeah, I see what you mean, Dave. Yeah, yeah there are, let's see, one, two, three, four, at least four, lined up, going uh, up slope. Yeah, right on the wall of the crater. Yeah. Just perfectly linear and perfectly uniform craters. Little ones, maybe. Yeah, but look, there's a, a rock just below those. I wonder if it could have bounced. <laughs> no, I couldn't have seen that many. And we're going at the base of the front. We're going down. 
into a little uh, depression that runs along the front. We came over another north-south trending ridge, and uh, we're going down a little bit, and then we're going to start up again. At the moment, Dave Scott's greatest desire was to explore higher in the mountains. Though he had never been a mountain climber, he enjoyed skiing and knew the thrill of being able to reach great heights and look out over a vast panorama. But it was not possible to take the rover any great distance up the mountainside. The ease with which it had climbed the slope at the base of the mountain was deceptive. The gradient turned out to be steeper than it looked, about 15 degrees. The plan was to work their way along the mountainside, sampling whatever geologic variety Hadley Delta had to offer. Scott knew what the geologists wanted, a crater that had acted as a drill hole into the mountain, strewn with boulders torn from the flank. But there were no such craters in sight. There was a sameness to the terrain up there. Everything was much more worn and subtle than the photographs had led them to believe. Angling along the contour of the mountain, Scott searched for a target, finally spotting a medium-sized crater. There weren't any boulders, but it would have to do. When he hopped off the rover, Scott almost fell over backward. The drive had been so easy that he had no idea the steepness of the slope they were on. Glancing at his feet, he saw to his surprise that his boots were half buried in dust, and yet the wire mesh wheels of the rover, fully loaded with both of them in spacesuits, had penetrated only a fraction of an inch. Scott warned Irwin to be careful. If something had happened to the rover now, Dave and Jim would have faced a long and difficult walk to safety. For the lunar module was more than three miles away, much more than the distance covered by Shepard and Mitchell during their round trip to Cone Crater. The whole question of how far to let two rover-riding astronauts go had consumed hours of pre-mission deliberation. At no time could the men be allowed to drive farther than they could walk back with the amount of oxygen remaining in their backpacks. Because their oxygen supply dwindled as the moonwalk progressed, this walk-back limit would be an ever-tightening noose. Even if the rover worked flawlessly, there was always the chance that a backpack would fail. In this case, the men would break out a set of hoses that would allow them to share cooling water. The man with the failed backpack would survive on his own emergency pack, which contained about an hour's worth of oxygen, and, if necessary, his partner's emergency pack, allowing more than enough time for the rover to race back to the lander. A more dire scenario was that both the rover and a backpack might break down. For a time, this remote possibility had so worried the managers that they considered writing the mission rules around it, a change that would have severely limited Scott and Irwin's explorations. But, in the end, 
NASA accepted the risk of the double failure, knowing that if it came to pass, one of the astronauts would not make it back to the lander alive. But all of this was far from Scott's mind as his gaze lingered on the view. He felt a wave of excitement. Everything was working. He joined Irwin and the two men headed down the slope to the crater. The mountain was a difficult workplace. The stiffness of their suits hindered climbing. They were reduced to taking small, ineffective hops. With every step, the soft, thick dust fell away from their feet as if they were walking on the side of a sand dune. Only a few steps left them nearly out of breath. They spent the better part of an hour there, obtaining only a few samples for their efforts. There just wasn't the variety they had hoped for. They would make another try at Spur Crater. But first, Scott wanted to get a boulder they had spotted along the way. Man, you know, <laughs> I'd sure hate to have to climb up here. Scott radioed that he would have hated to have to have climbed to his current position, and as he struggled back up the slope, he was grateful that the rover had done so well. It'd never get here without this thing. And yet, they had barely begun to scale Hadley Delta. With no haze to block the view, its upper reaches were clearly visible many thousands of feet beyond. Gazing up at that bright frontier, Irwin now silently wished they could go higher. Back at Mission Control, Joe Allen sat at the Capcom's console, studying a photo map of Hadley Delta. Every so often, he made a mark showing the best estimate of where the rover was. Joe's brown hair, short on the sides but longer in the front, fell across an unlined forehead. Alan listened intently to the voices of his friends on the moon. At the same time, he kept an ear tuned to the conversations in the geology backroom. He also had a TV monitor on which the scientists could write him notes, so that if a question came down from the moon, Alan would be ready with the answer. Joseph Percival Allen IV was an Iowa-born physicist who came to NASA with the XS-11. He was sometimes called Little Joe because at 5 feet 6 inches he had usurped Pete Conrad by half an inch as the shortest man in the astronaut office. At 34, he looked as young as the day he entered Yale to begin working toward his doctorate. In the minds of the geologist, Allen's assignment as mission scientist was one of the best things that happened to Apollo 15. Allen combined a youthful enthusiasm with a keen scientific mind and an innate sense of people. On the field trips, it was Allen who took the edge off Scott's driving intensity with a humorous remark. Now at Capcom, it was Allen's job to take the myriad inputs to the astronauts 
from the geologist, the flight director, and the flight controllers and synthesized them into one coherent voice. Joe Allen was Scott and Irwin's link with the back room. No one but he could speak directly to Scott and Irwin. Any request, advice, or questions from the back room had to be spoken by Lovell over the loop to flight director Jerry Griffin and then via Allen to the moon. Of course, it was no accident that every link in this human chain had been out on the field trips at one time or another and that each person understood the scientific objectives of the mission. Allen, in particular, understood so well that often he did not even need to ask the back room what to say. Many years later, Lee Silver said that Joe was more than just an ally. He was a colleague. Throughout the moonwalks, Alan had tried to convey a sense of support and optimism. He knew Scott and Irwin were working very hard, and he never missed an opportunity to ease the pressure with a comic remark or a private joke. At each achievement, however minor, Alan voiced his approval by commenting, Extraordinary or superb. Deke Slayton had come down on him once or twice for deviating from the sparse style of communication that characterized standard pilots' radio discipline. But Alan didn't let that bother him. There wasn't any operational reason not to let Scott and Irwin know that he was pulling for them. Alan knew roughly where Scott and Irwin were, a few hundred meters east of Spur Crater and slightly upslope from it. Scott had already radioed that he didn't think it was worth going any farther, to the east. They had already seen as much variety as they were likely to see. However, just before they reached their main destination for the day, which was Spur Crater, they sighted a large boulder some distance away. It was the largest they had seen and one of a few on the side of the mountain. They were eager to take a closer look, and Dave edged the rover carefully toward it while Jim carried on observing and commenting. But the further they drove, the softer and looser the soil became. It wasn't long before the rover began running into difficulty, its wheels sinking into the soft soil on the slope. Dave tried to compensate by steering uphill to keep them moving along the contour line. They were determined to find out more, and as they drew closer to the ten-foot-long boulder, their curiosity was further aroused. They could see that a considerable amount of material had accumulated on its upslope side, indicating that the boulder had been in place for a very long time. This meant it was almost certain to be significant geologically. After bringing the rover to a halt above the boulder, Dave realized they might have real difficulty climbing back up the slope due to the steep gradient. Joe Allen listened intently as Scott maneuvered the rover, then stopped. Suddenly, the radio link was scratchy, but through the static, Allen could hear Scott's labored breathing. Then he heard Irwin say, 
back up here, you know. Hey, troops, uh, I'm not sure you should go down slope very far, if at all, from the rover. No, it's not far. Let me try it, Jim. You just stay there. I think we can sidestep back up. Well, make sure you check it now. Just proceed carefully. Okay, I'm halfway, and I'll go back first. Why don't you stay there, Jim? Okay, come back up. Okay, Dave, how's the footing? I think I'll, uh... Yeah, the footing is all right, except that you have to work pretty hard to uh, get back up. So I think what I'm going to do... Uh, Jim, are you still up near the rover? Wait a minute till I get there, Jim. Yeah? Uh, Jim, uh, uh, let's ask you to walk around to the front there and uh, just take a general rough guess as to where the Earth is. You don't even have to use the sighting device uh, pointed about correctly, and uh, we're going to give the TV a try. As you heard, there was no television from the rover at this moment, but Capcom Allen could picture the steep, powdery slope. He also knew Scott and Irwin wouldn't give up a prize without a fight, and he could sense that the managers in the back row of Mission Control were getting worried. Suddenly, Scott called out that the rover was beginning to slide down the hill. As the back wheels came off the ground, Scott quickly got back on to hold the rover down. The astronauts' voices didn't convey the seriousness of the situation. If the rover got away from them, it meant scrapping much of the mission and a long walk back to the lunar module. Copying all of it. Okay, where do you want me to hold it? Okay. Just come down and stand on your side. On my side? Yeah, okay. You just stand there and take a break. I'll take a look. Okay. 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 Perfectly situated there. Yeah. Alan listened as Scott held on to the rover to keep it from sliding down the hill. Now he heard Irwin talking about something he had noticed on top of the boulder, some kind of green material, he was saying. Alan knew that this was unusual, and he wasn't surprised when Irwin 
urged Scott to get a sample. The men quickly traded places. Now Irwin held the rover while Scott made his way to the boulder. Allen cautioned once more, sensing now that Scott and Irwin had the situation under control. Uh, Dave and Jim, use your judgment here. Uh, the block's not all that important, and we'd like you to spend most of the remaining time at Spur Crater, of the remaining front time, that is. It was clear from Allen's comment that Houston was ready for the astronauts to move on to Spur Crater and leave behind what must have seemed a pretty hazardous sight. But Dave and Jim were so close to the boulder that they decided not to give up so easily. Although it was difficult to work on the soft, steep slope, in Scott's opinion, they were in no danger of catastrophe. After all, Jim had positioned himself below the rover to keep it from slipping any further. Scott slowly edged closer and eventually managed to chip off a fragment of the boulder and scrape away some of the mysterious green matter and bag it before returning to join Jim so that they could get going again. It was certainly a moment of high tension, but the risk was worth the gain. Years later, some scientists concluded, after considerable analysis, that the green material was part of an original ocean of olivine which surrounded the moon before a crust of anorthosite was formed. When the crust was pierced by the impact of the sort of projectile that formed the Mare Imbrium Basin, the remnants of the olivine ocean were ejected to form great fire fountains of olivine glass. This mixed with soil and formed the rim of the crater on which they stood that day on the lower slope of Mount Hadley Delta. Station 6A was the mission designation for this site, not to its citing a name for what turned out to be the scene of a discovery that would be key in unraveling the mysterious formation of the moon. Within minutes, having bagged a piece of their strange find, the men were driving again, heading west towards Spur Crater. Time was running out. This would be the last stop on the mountain. But their next find was to lend further weight to the conclusions eventually reached about the origin and formation of our nearest neighbor in space. Both discoveries marked out that afternoon they spent on the lunar surface as one of the most significant chapters in the history of scientific exploration. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 346 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 15, Traverse 2, Part 1. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. 
Our next episode is scheduled to be released in two weeks on September 10th. If you are looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 175 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. Okay, had a few afterthoughts on this episode. First of all, I am very delighted to announce the birth of our granddaughter, May Jones. Welcome to Planet Earth, May. May and her mother are in good health, and we are very thankful for that. I posted a picture of May and Mrs. SRH on Patreon on Monday, and I will try to get one posted on Facebook before the end of the day. If you are not following me on Facebook and Twitter, you should. The links are on the homepage in the right column. For those interested, I will allow Mrs. SRH to fill in the rest of the details for May. We had a very observant anonymous listener send me a couple cans of Tang. Now, I'm assuming this listener realized that we will have a Tang ceremony coming up for reaching 350 episodes. If you haven't uh, heard the Tang ceremony, you won't want to miss that. (laughs) I think the anonymous listener is Joe, but I'm not sure. But thank you, Joe. Uh, My grandson and I certainly appreciate the Tang, and we will use it for episode 350. Well, I don't know about you, but I am loving this Apollo 15 mission. That rover really enhances the exploration capability of the J missions. And Jim and Dave are out there giving it their all at great personal risk and physical suffering. Irwin was a very intelligent man and had such a great attitude making his suggestions instead of being pushy. I know for a fact that Dave Scott really appreciated that and enjoyed having Irwin with him on the moon. Dave was about to give up on that last boulder with the green material, but Irwin convinced him to get a sample, and it turned out to be very significant. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. What a great crew on Apollo 15. Now, in this episode, I mentioned Lee Silver, and I want to make sure everyone knows who that is. Dr. Silver was a professor of geology at Caltech and an instructor to the Apollo 13, 15, 16, and 17 astronaut crews. He taught the astronauts how to perform field geology, essentially creating lunar field geology as a new discipline. His training was credited with a significant improvement in the J-Mission Apollo Flight's scientific returns. After the Apollo program, Silver became a member of the United States National Academy of Sciences in 1974. Currently, he is the W.M. Keck Foundation Professor for Resource Geology Emeritus at Caltech. He is 95 years old. 
What a great contribution he made to lunar exploration. If you're enjoying the podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting the podcast. For over seven and a half years, we have been entirely listener-supported. We're currently enjoying the dog days of summer (laughs) when contributions typically diminish a bit. So if you'd like to contribute, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and click on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Over the last fortnight, we did have some new contributions, and I would like to thank Ken W. from Georgia, who donated at the Orion level. Craig W. from Australia donated at the shuttle level and earned a rocket emoji. Mike S. from the UK donated at the Apollo level and earned a galaxy emoji. Matthew F. from Tennessee sent in another donation and is at the Voyager level. Andrej S. from the Czech Republic sent in another donation and is at the Gemini level. Greg K. from Washington donated at the Mercury level. Francois G. pledged on Patreon at the Voyager level. And Gene C. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. Our total Patreons are still at 249. We lost some and gained some. Our goal is to reach 300 by the end of the year. Now, what usually happens this time of month on Patreon is some supporters' credit cards usually expire and we lose some donors. We usually get those donors back. So if you think your credit card is about to expire on Patreon, give that a quick check, please, if you wouldn't mind. Our total donors for 2020 have reached 383 with a goal of reaching 500 by the end of the year. Now, here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, SRH friends. Are you ready for the SRH winner for this episode? Remember, you will get the choice of a Space Rocket History magnet, or two coasters, or two stickers, or two static clings, or two holographic stickers, or the new SRH archive magnet. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected David Sandoval. David Sandoval, if you'll email us, mike at spacerockethistory.com, Tell us your address and your SRH prize preference. We'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 383 of you who contributed thus far in 2020. Now for our update. Baby update. We are very excited and happy to announce our first granddaughter arrived on Friday. We call it Mayday because, as you heard, her name is May. She and mom are doing great. She weighed in at 8 pounds, 1 ounce, and is 20 inches long. We could not witness her birth because of this pandemic we're in, but we were able to keep big brother Evan. He stayed with us, and we were able to FaceTime after she was born to check check in on his new baby sister. Last week, we also celebrated Mike's birthday, and I think one of Mike's best presents was to hold his sweet new little newborn May. He already shares his birthday week with one of his grandsons, and now his first granddaughter as well. How special. I can't stop smiling every time I think of Mike holding that little one. It's just so precious. My sources for this episode were NASA, Two Sides of the Moon by David Scott, A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin, To Rule the Night by Jim Irwin, Falling to Earth, an Apollo 15 astronaut's journey to the moon by Al Worden. 
Failure is not an option by Gene Krantz, Apollo 15 Lunar Surface Journal, Internet Archive, and CBS News, and Wikipedia. That is all we have for this episode. I will try to have episode 347 posted by Thursday, September 10th. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.